Hey, Deserving Listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would respond to a patron email, very interesting email, that I would like to share with you here. But first, let me introduce the podcast. This is called the Psychology in Seattle Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This email is from patron Ruben. Ruben writes, What are the 20 most important episodes in your life that made you the person you are now, where you learned a key lesson? So this is an interesting question. Uh, Ruben, I think, sent me this email several months ago, and I put it in my archive thinking that I probably would never answer this question. It's rather personal, and I don't know if I had a, I don't know, a good formulation of an answer anyway. But I gave it some thought and decided to make an episode about it. And, you know, to come up with the 20 most important episodes of my life, it seemed like an interesting exercise because, one, what is an important episode of my life or anyone's life, really? You know, to think of life that way as if we have episodes or moments that are pivotal. Um, I I think that's the way that biographers uh, think, journalists think, People who make biopics, they think this way, but I think I don't. I don't think that way about my life. I don't think like, well, there was that moment where everything turned, you know, uh, or maybe my life just doesn't have moments like that or something. I don't know. So I, it, it seemed like I to come up with twenty would be so hard, um, or even just come up with one, um, and then thinking like, well, geez, that's pretty personal, even if I did come up with one, right? So so I gave it some thought, and I decided to make an episode about it. Uh, this episode is just, is just for patrons of the podcast, though, mostly because of the personal nature, and I would rather not have this just, you know, published to the general public. I'd like to just share this with my, uh, you know, patrons of the podcast. So if, if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast yet, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to go to patreon.com and become a patron. That's patreon.com. When you become a patron of the podcast, you have access to hundreds of exclusive episodes. Let me, let me just read the various different exclusive episodes that we have here. Uh, we have Narcissistic Personality Disorder, Rape Fantasy Reasons, 20 Tips for a Good Life, uh, contextual family therapy, OCD, social justice and training programs, cultural cultural bound syndromes, dangerous clients, coaching versus counseling, self disclosure, time management tips, mental illness and gender, clients who are racist, common confidentiality mistakes, emotion focused therapy, psychodynamic therapy, revoking a therapist license, hypochondria. Uh, suing a counselor, repressed memories, borderline versus complex PTSD, psychotherapy notes versus progress notes, uh, therapist comp- competence, Donald Winnicott. Uh, we have a Black Mirror episode that's only for patrons. Uh, passive aggressive personality disorder, choosing the right grad school. Um, man, you know, gaslighting, narrative therapy, parapsychology, ethics, um, abuse by science. Dark Triad, ADHD. It just you know, there's so many. I would people would argue, and I would argue that our best episodes are just for patrons of the podcast. So go to Patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast. Do so now. Also, if you are a patron and you want to go back and listen to 
those episodes. A way of an easy way to find them is to go to our website um, and to log in with your um, with your password. Okay, so let's go on to the patron zone. All right, welcome to the patron zone, patrons. Love you so much for becoming a patron. So the first, I'm, I'm going to try to do these pivotal moments or these, um, you know, episodes, important episodes in chronological order. I also did not come up with 20, uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> 20 just seems like too many. Um, so I came up with, what, eight-ish, seven. So the first one that I came up with is, is one of my very first memories, actually. It was when I was, I think, about three or four, and I was in Spokane with my family. My, my parents were, uh, they grew up in Spokane, Washington, which is eastern Washington, which is about, uh, about a five, six-hour drive east of Seattle over the mountains and into the, the plains of eastern Washington. And I, we was, so we would always go over there every summer um, and sometimes during the winter uh, because that's where all my parents' uh, family lived. And so if we were going to see their siblings, my aunts and uncles and grandparents and whatnot, that we would go to Spokane. And, and I um, remember this moment where we, we walked down this hill as a family. I, I have two older uh, siblings. I have an older brother, older sister, and they're about six years older than me. And so when I was young, when I was an, you know, a preschool age kid, it felt like I had two sets of parents because I had my parents and then I had my older brother and sister who were so much older than me. I mean, you know, they're, they're 10, 11 years old. To me at three or four, that felt like they were basically adults. <laughs> and so um, a lot of my memories, early memories, have kind of to do with that vibe and but I also felt kind of like an only kid in a sense because um I didn't really my older brother and sister had each other similar age they had a similar sense of humor and you know similar interests and similar friends growing up and obviously my parents were together but then there was me who felt kind of like a like a fifth wheel um which had its pros and cons but anyway so that's the background to me at, in Spokane, and we, we walked down this hill, and it, I don't know what we were doing down there, maybe like a picnic or something, and I, uh, the whole family was going to walk back up this hill, and it was pretty steep to get to the parking lot where our car was or something, and it, the, I remember the sun had set, and so it was, there was still a little bit of light in the in the sky but it was definitely getting dark and so uh, it felt like okay we should probably head in and we were um, all walking up this this pretty steep hill and for some reason I just could not make it up this hill and I, I remember every um, fiber in me just was trying to get up this hill and I just could not manage it and I felt it was a sort of kind of depression almost just sort of like a defeat, right? Like I can't, I can't do it. I I'm too tired. I, 
it's too steep and and i i distinctly remember that feeling of of this inability and looking at my family and they seem to be managing it okay and I announced that to the family. I just said something to the effect of, I, I can't make it. I can't do it. And my family, um, I don't know who decided to do this, but they all, instead of like picking me up or telling me to pick up the pace, the four of them huddled around me and gave me like this pep talk and said, you can do it. You can make it. And, you know, we believe in you kind of a thing. And I had the energy of Thor, <laughs> Hulk. And I ran up the mountain. Not only did I make it up, not the mountain, obviously, it's just it's probably just a tiny little hill, but I, I made it up the, the hill after that with you know, with tremendous speed compared to, to before. And I was so, I don't know, impressed by the power of family or the, the power of inspiration or the power of the un, the universe. Cause it, it felt like before, you know, before my family huddled around me, I, it felt like there's no way this is going to work. I, I can't make it. I'm, and also kind of a hint of I'm too young or I'm too or I'm incompetent somehow. I'm embarrassed that I can't make it up the hill like everyone else can, or just some kind of uh, shame on some level, I suppose. And then with this belief in me and this power of the universe, I shot up the hill. <laughs> and you know it it was it was mind blowing to me that my state could be so changeable and that my energy level could be so changeable based on, you know, I didn't have words for it at the time, but based on like society and relationships and love and, um, you know, belief in me, inspiration. It just, it was a very poignant moment for me and obviously stuck with me. And I think that, the meaning of it changed over time, but I remember reflecting on it when I was, you know, young, when I was, you know, like seven or eight years old, I, re I remember re reminiscing on that moment with my family. Um, having said all that, as I go through all these pivotal moments, I, I know memory research well enough to understand that this story might not have even happened, and it might just be a constructed memory that me and my family constructed uh, based on either a, another story that was similar, uh, you know, an event that was similar or just completely made something up, um, uh, you know, out of nothing. And uh, so I just, I just want to mention that. I know that sort of discounts everything I've said and am about to say, but as an eternal skeptic, I, I just have to throw that out there that um, that I could be making all this up. It, I mean, I've shared that, you know, me and my family have talked about this, you know, like when I was seven years old, I, I'm fairly sure that we remembered as a family this event when I was three or four. 
and then throughout you know every five years it somehow comes up and either in conversation or with or in my mind and having said all that um, I am of the belief that it doesn't matter if it happened exactly the way I remember it or not or exactly the way my family remembers or not it it matters more the meaning that is is associated with it over time, right? So let's say that at the age of seven, me and my family, uh, let, let's say that the real event, if you had a videotape uh, camera or video recording of the event, you would see like, you know, it's daytime, it's not in Spokane, and it's a tiny hill, and my siblings aren't there, okay? And it's just my parents. So completely different circumstances. Um, I'm crying because I'm being a little brat and I don't want to walk up the hill because I don't want to go home because I want to stay at the park or something. And my, and my, you know, my parents, um, come up to me and they say, come on, you can do it. And then I, you know, and they say, if we go, if, if you go up the hill and we go home, we'll, I'll get you some ice cream. And then I shoot up the hill. (laughs) Okay. So let's say that's, that's the real story that happened. Well, then by the age of seven, when I, you know, I'm seven years old now, it's a few years later, and my family talks about that moment. Somehow my brother and sister are now there. And then when I'm 12, we tell the story again, and, and it's, it has nothing to do with ice cream. and has to do with my parents uh, cheering me on or something. And, um, you know, and then over time, it just becomes more and more the story that I'm telling you today. Um, the The meaning that is associated with each of those shifts is uh, just as relevant as what actually happened, so to speak. So, um, and and the uh, you know when people tell a story that's meaningful to them, you know there are several elements to that I that I pull there that I see or hear. One is is like oh, there's this story that's related to an event that they're probably not remembering entirely accurately. But, you know, maybe it's somewhat accurate. That's interesting. Another part of it is their current way of telling the story is interesting to me, and and the current meanings they have with it is interesting to me. And and the fact that they they have retained this, or, you know, it, what does this say about their current life? You know, what that's all you can really bank on is like this is a narrative that they have of this event that may or may not have happened and this and they seem to be expressing some kind of meaning uh at through this story so the meaning that i'm there's several meanings that i'm expressing through this story and you might hear them one is that i value family and that i value inspiration or belief in each other or in um, positive energy. I believe in mentorship. I believe in the ability to overcome things that you think you can't. But if you have support or the right access to the right sort of energy, you will be able to overcome it. Some things like pancreatic cancer, you can't overcome with positive energy. But things like the ability to get through a difficult situation, uh, certainly the ability to um, have energy is totally – I mean, why do you think people go to CrossFit or why do you think people go to the gym? I mean, anybody – you can you can work out at home by yourself if you want to. You can do push-ups, sit-ups, stretch, 
Um, you can jump on top of a, you know, a tire or, you know, throw around a log at home if you want to. But we, we do them in public. Uh, we could worship our gods by ourselves, but we don't. We go to church. We could watch sports at home. In fact, it's easier and much, much uh, better viewing to, to watch a football game or soccer game at home on the TV than to, uh, you know, spend uh, hundreds of dollars, especially for American football, uh, you know, drive down there, park, walk, uh, endure the elements, blah, 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 uh, the, the noise, not being able to see because your, your seats aren't that great. But we don't. We, we love uh, doing it as a group. Um, and so, um, so that's a meaning that I'm, that I'm pulling, you know, expressing through this story that resonates with me. Um, the power of love, the, the power of, um, you know, connection and all that attachment. Anyway, so just keep all that in mind about everything that I'm saying, <laughs> all the stories I have here. Um, another story here is, uh, around the same age, I've told this story before, but I think it's it's worth including in this list of p- pivotal moments of my life. That uh, so, Ruben asked um, episodes that made me who I am and where I learned a key lesson. And this next story again, I'm about age four, and I stole my my friend's matchbox car. So it's a it's a little toy car, and I was at his house. And he had the exact same, I I probably had like, I don't know, five to 10 little matchbox cars. And the, uh, I think I just, for the first time, understood the name matchbox car. It's like the size of a matchbox. (laughs) I I don't think I ever got that. You know, when that happens, you know, like it happened to me when I, uh, just like a year ago, I realized that the word understand has a literal meaning that you stand under something and it, it's a metaphor for for getting something right anyway so i was at my friend mark hankins house who lived down the street and he had a matchbox car that was exactly like mine it was this red car with this these like um the engine was in the back it had these vents that were coming out of the back i can picture it in my mind and i stole it i stole his his matchbox car. And it was this total impulsive thing. It was stupid because I had the exact same one. In fact, the one that I had at home was in better condition. His was more beat up than mine. So why I didn't need it because I had the same one. And two, what was, you know, what was the purpose of that? I just remember it was this total impulsive thing. And when I got home, I remember I was um, right outside the door to my bedroom in the hallway, you know, the the upstairs hallway where you have the bedrooms. And I'm just sitting there in the hallway staring at this matchbox car and I'm I'm going over all these thoughts, these four-year-old version of thoughts, right? Thoughts like, why did I take this and what kind of trouble am I going to get into? And is this the end of my life? I mean, not specific to specific thoughts like that, but, but along those lines, right? Just, you know, a four-year-old's version of regret and shame and worry and 
um, wanting to turn back time and not knowing how to get out of a situation, feeling trapped. And I remember I was just paralyzed by those feelings and just staring at this matchbox car, not knowing what to do and beating myself up on the inside, you know, just, just paralyzed with, with all those feelings. I I don't think I was particularly, I wasn't traumatized by it, but it, 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 it was a conundrum of emotion that I had no way out of. I, I, because it, if I returned it, I was going to get in trouble. If I kept it, I was going to get in trouble. You know, there, there was, there's just no way out. Right. And my mom is uh, just probably doing chores like she, cause she was a stay at home mom at the time. And she walks down the hall and she sees me just staring at this matchbox car. And she, she just asks me, what are you doing? <laughs> she probably just looks at, you know, like my four year old son is just sitting in the hallway, staring at a matchbox car. Like normally he'd be playing with it or something. And so she just says, you know, what are you doing? And, and the question I remember, I interpreted it because, you know, when you're young, you don't differentiate between self and other the way that you do when you're older. And I think I interpreted her question to be in reference to all the feelings and thoughts I had. I don't, I think I thought that she knew what was going on inside my mind, right? And so she says, What's going on? And so I, you know, that opened the floodgates and I told her everything. I stole this car. I didn't know what to do. I probably cried. And, and she, she listened and then she said, well, why don't you just give him the car back? And there was something so genius seeming to that solution because I, I think my brain was in such a, was in such a lock, you know, cause to me it was like, I had brought the car past a threshold to my home and it was probably even like later that, you know, that night it was, you know, it was just, but some threshold had been crossed where I can't just give it back. You know, if I was still at his house and I had taken it and put it in my pocket, I could just like take it out of my pocket and put it, put it back. But somehow bringing it all the way to my house by myself, it, it had crossed some line but my mom had told me that it was okay. You, that line is not a firm boundary. You can actually go back through time and return this 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 car. And the, her attitude was such that it felt like it was possible and that everything would be okay. And I'm sure to her, she was like, well you know, if you stole it and you feel bad about it, just give it back to him. And she's probably thinking, he probably doesn't even know you took it. He probably doesn't care that much. You know, just give it back to him. And so, but to me, it, 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 prior to her telling me that, it, it felt like an impossible trap to be in. And of course, you know, when you're four, you just don't have the ability to sort of logic your way out of a situation. So, I promptly returned it and everything was fine. And I remember my friend Mark Hankin didn't care at all. <laughs> I remembered going to him and saying, so Mark, I took your car and 
I'm returning it. And he's like, oh, okay. And then we just, you know, played. <laughs> and I suppose the lesson I could have learned was that I could steal anything I wanted and no one would care. But that that's not what I that's not what I learned. What I learned was don't steal was what I learned. Uh, and that if you apologize for something, that can go a long way. And maybe to ask for help and to let people know that you're suffering because they might be able to help you. You know, the fact that you're suffering and you feel like you have no way out isn't, you know, strong evidence that there is no way out. It's another, it's similar to another story I had or another uh, story I have, another situation that happened that I've told on the podcast before where I was in line, same age, about four years old, maybe five. And I'm, uh, my mom is, buying the groceries and I'm in that little uh, area where they have the impulse buy items. And one of the things was this uh, little pack of gum. I think it was chiclets. If I remember right, I, I don't think they sell chiclets anymore. Was it chiclets? Anyway, it's this green gum that comes in a very particular kind of package and they almost look like pills. They, they're packaged the way you would package like decongestant pills where you, you know, you have each pill in its own little foil saran wrap situation. I don't know. I'm not describing it right. But anyway, I was, my mom is buying the groceries and I'm staring at these chiclets and I want, I want the gum. And again, I remember afterwards thinking, you're not even really a Chicklets fan. What was up with that? But there was something that called out to me about this pack of gum, and I, I just had to have it, and I'm staring at it, and I, I'm thinking, okay, how can I grab it without anyone seeing? You know, where And where do I put it? And how do I hide it? And I, I'm stuck in that in that zone of, of the conundrum, and... and I, I want it, but I don't want to get in trouble. And I'm staring at it. And I'm, I must have been doing that for a long time. I'd completely zoned out the rest of the world. And then all of a sudden, this face of a woman is right in my face. There, all of a sudden, you know, because when you're little, it, everything is tall. I remember that was another thing. I just remember realizing that... Um, or always being knowledgeable of the fact that adults were tall or these older kids were tall and I was little. I would, you know, I, I came up to people's thighs and just walking around in a world of giants. It was, it was, I remember being very conscious of that. Just like, man, I can't wait to be tall so I can at least, you know, altitude wise be at the same level as other people. Anyway, so this face, uh, is suddenly in my field of vision, and this woman is is saying words to me, but all I can hear is that she knows I was trying to steal the, the gum, even though I hadn't touched it. I was just staring at it. She's saying words to me, but all I hear is, um, you're a bad boy, and you're in big trouble for even thinking about stealing that gum. That That's what I thought she was saying to me, but that Obviously, couldn't have been because she didn't know. And I instantly start crying. I just burst into tears. And and she somehow kind of shuffles me out of the store. 
And it was then I realized that the woman was a cashier and she was, she had, she had rung up my mom in, you know, and, you know, exchanged all the money and stuff. And my mom had, had wandered out of the store and thought I was following her, but I wasn't because I was staring at this pack of gum. <laughs> so the, the grocery store worker was telling me, your mom has left the store follow her out. <laughs> That's all she was telling me. And I burst into tears. And I, for this, you know, real brief moment, I was very regretful for having even thought about stealing this gum. And in that moment, vowed to never steal again and to never lie again, to never deceive again. Um, so, you know, stealing Mark's car, staring at the chiclets, the age of four. I, I remember I, I also stole a Jolly Roger. Uh, the, the um, you know, as a typical kid, I was very into candy. <laughs> and I loved candy. I just loved all of its forms. You know, there, were, there are and were in the 70s even then so many different forms of candy. You had... You had the Jolly Rancher kind and the the candy bar kind, and you had you had like Snickers, which is a kind of candy bar. But then you had like um, Charleston Chew and other kinds of brittle, hard things. Then you had gum, and you had you know you had Wrigley's spearmint gum all the way up to Bubblicious, which had a spurt of juice that would come out when you ate it, and. Uh, I remember stealing a one Jolly Roger, and maybe maybe that happened before the Chicklets because I I maybe that's like I went through a phase where whenever we went to the grocery store, I was scheming a way to to steal a candy thing, like I did that one time when I got that Jolly Roger, because because the Jolly Roger back then was sold bulk. <laughs> it was, if I remember right, it was there was this huge. A barrel full of Jolly Rogers uh, candies, you know those those little hard candies that are in a little twisty Saran wrap thing. And I've, if my memory serves, I, I stole one of those, and what felt so great, you know, because because when I was growing up, um, candy was something that was a was a treat. You know, you got it at Halloween time, and you know maybe other moments in life. So. The fact that I could just get a Jolly Roger candy and have it was, you know, was really quite special. Anyway, okay, another um, pivotal moment. I hope this is interesting to people because uh, if it's not, I I could see it being extremely boring. Um, so another pivotal moment here. A little bit later in life, I'm I'm age I think about six or seven, and I walked to school from my house to elementary school, even kindergarten. I, I walked to school. It was about a mile away and it's sort of rural suburbia, Sammamish, Washington back then, not a lot of traffic on the road and, and no thought about predators, child predators. And I would walk to school at the age of six or seven by myself. There were other kids also walking to school at the same time there was no thought about, um, you know, predators or safety. I, my parents 
just trusted me to stay to the side of the road. And there weren't even sidewalks. You, at some points, just walked on the road. <laughs> and, um, But again, there was just so little traffic back then that uh, it just... I, I'm guessing it just didn't cross anyone's mind to to worry about such a thing. But anyway, so I walked to school by myself, and one and so, I think sometimes I would I would meet my friends, obviously. But for for whatever reason, on this one moment, on the way home from school, I was I was alone and young. Again, probably I'm maybe seven. I'm guessing at the oldest, really, and. I am uh, this this older kid, Mike McAllister. He was sort of infamous in my neighborhood. There was the McAllister family. Someone is mowing the lawn. I'm have to or doing something loud. I have to close the window. Hold on a second. Okay, I'm back. It's a nice summer morning, and I thought I would have the windows open while I podcast, which is always a bad idea. And uh, Someone decides, I think it sounds like a chainsaw or something. Anyway, so, or no, a blower. It's probably a blower. Um, so the McAllister family, I remember people were afraid of. It probably wasn't based on anything real. But I think this Mike McAllister kid was somewhat infamous for being a jerk face. I, I remember my older brother and sister would because that Mike McAllister was in between was closer in age to my older brother and sister, but he was younger, and so he would pester my older brother and sister. But my older brother and sister were bigger than him, and so uh, he knew not Mike knew not to mess with my older brother and sister. But anyway, one day on the way home, he comes up to me, and when you think about this, it's just it's so sadistic what he did. He walks up to me and he's and he just he starts walking home with me and there's no one around. It's kind of interesting to think about. It's just like nobody around except for me and him uh, on these back roads walking home. And he had this Levi's jean jacket back when it was not a hipster thing to wear. It was something a denim. You know, Levi's jean jacket is something you wore as part of living in the country or something. And he's taller than me, right? And he he has his this jacket, and he's he's whipping me with it, not in a angry way. He was he was totally calm, and he'd be walking next to me, and he was like, "Bang!" You know. And I remember these those metal buttons that are on Levi's, that's what hurt. It was like these metal buttons would hit me or sort of scrape across my face or my head. And he would he was just whipping me with this jacket and walking next to me. He didn't he didn't just run up to me and hit me and walk away. Like he was escorting me home while he was beating me with this jacket. Now I'm sure it was scarier than it was more painful, right? But it I just remember just being terrified by it, just like this big kid, and I'm at his mercy. He can do whatever he wants to me, right? And he's just he's just you know beating me with his jacket. And I remember we were walking home, and we got to this one house where there was 
a family. I had a bunch of family friends that lived in this house, and he must have known that because as we got into view of that house, as we were passing by the house, because I'm crying, I'm like, you know, he, Mike McAllister puts his arm around me and he acts like he's consoling me, which is just so sadistic and psychopathic, right? So he's, he's consoling me. He's, he's walking next to me and, and he's, he's like, oh, that's okay. You'll be okay. And he does that for, you know, the 30 seconds or so it takes to, cross out of view of this one house. And then he, you know, turns back to, to beating me again. And it's probably about, I don't know, half a mile walk, but it it probably took, I don't know, 10 minutes to do. It felt like an eternity though. And it was, you know, 40 years ago and I can remember it pretty clearly, or at least I think I can. And then when I got home, I told my parents what happened and uh or my mom because my mom would have been home then my dad gets home because he worked at boeing at the same shift every 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 day every monday through friday he always came home at the exact same time about five twenty, five twenty-five, and my mom tells him or i tell him and my dad was not my parents were not happy they they were extremely upset about this and so my dad says, you know, a little bit like we have dinner or something. And my, my dad says, okay, Kirk, come with me. So we walk up the hill and, and we go to the McAllister's house. And I'll just never forget it. My, my dad just pounds on the door. And uh, Mr. McAllister answers the door. And my dad proceeds to tell Mike McAllister's father my story. And the dad, the McAllister father, didn't uh, question the story. He apparently knew his son well enough to believe that such a thing could happen. And Mr. McAllister said, I'll take care of it. And, it, and it's, I remember it was convincing enough to my dad anyway that my dad said, okay. And so um, now in my mind, which I'm sure is not true as we were walking away from the McAllister house I could hear the the wailing of a Mike McAllister being spanked or something I'm sure that's not what happened but in terms of my memory but I'm guessing something happened and you have to wonder a kid who is bullying a seven-year-old you have to wonder if the family life wasn't so great I don't know there's really, there's really, I don't have any data on that. Um, all I have is, is, is that sort of uh, story. So that was a very pivotal, pivotal moment or very affecting story. I, I don't know exactly what I learned from it or how my life changed after it. Um, it was mildly traumatic, so that's bad. I'm guessing I learned some kind of lesson around like, some people are really, really mean. It was pro- I think it was my first moment and really a rare moment in my life where I was the victim and target of someone's just unbridled abuse for, for no reason, right? There were times when I got into fights with kids at school, even friends of mine, we would get in fights sometimes. But 
I, I, I never thought it was um, bullying. I just thought it was like, well, we had a disagreement and we decided to punch each other until we um, got tired of, of punching each other. And, uh, and I never thought like, I, I, I was never afraid of the situation. I never felt like someone was, you know, being a predator on me. Whereas this Mike kid, it, it felt that way. Right. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, impressionable moment, a, a similar, a very lesser moment happened. I've talked about this on the podcast too before is I was in the seventh grade ish and, um, it was a, a winter afternoon. I'm walking home from school and I, it was at a time when you would wear top siders, speary top siders, boat shoes, the kind that, uh, Tom Cruise wore in Risky Business, and you didn't wear them with socks. You wore them with without any socks, and I remember that just being mind blowing at the time. Like you don't wear them with socks, but of course, Risky Business. I'm guessing, along with a lot of other uh, things along those lines, movie, TV shows are shot in California, Southern California, where it's warm, and therefore you don't really need socks. In in Issaquah, Sammamish, Seattle most of the year, if you're outside without socks, your feet are freezing. So, so it was no different on this day. My, my feet were not only cold, they were basically numb because I was trying to be cool at school by wearing my top siders without socks. And, uh, my toes had, had gone numb on the way home. <laughs> and this bully, this, this older kid, big guy, is walking in the opposite direction towards me. He's with his friends and he, for no reason, just walked up to me. Uh, uh, excuse me. Stomped on my foot and pushed me down. And when I got home, so at the moment I thought that was weird, fucking weird. This guy just out of nowhere decides to attack me. Uh, and, uh, and then he just kept walking, you know, it wasn't like he, um, said anything. He just walked up to me, stomped on my foot, pushed me down. And when I got home, and I remember just being boggled by that, you know, was didn't really have a, a reason to fight back because I thought, what is happening? And when I got home, I, when my, and my feet thawed out, I uh, realized that my toe was in extreme pain. And when I investigated it my toenail completely uh, came off my my entire toenail had been ripped off of my toe <laughs> and I just thought well that's interesting I didn't know that would happen and of course back then in the you know early 80s and I and I guess in my sort of circle you don't go to the doctor for such things. You just sort of walk it off, right? And so my my toenail has since grown back, obviously, but it's not really connected to my toe. <laughs> so if I if I cut it, you know, as I'm trimming my toenail, I will. If I don't watch it, I'll end up trimming it all the way off because it, it, there's no real point, you know. For most people, your toenails or my other toenail, you, you can only cut it so far back before you're getting into you know, blood territory, right? Well, one of my toenails doesn't have that quality. 
<laughs> but anyway, so I saw him later in life at a bar at, in the university district in Seattle, and I recognized him. And it was this would have been probably ten years later, and I'm you know probably twenty three at the time or something, and. I was bigger than taller and stronger and I saw that he was probably my size. And so I went up to him and he, he was playing, I believe he was playing foosball with his friends. And I walked up to him in the middle of all of his friends and just said, Hey, do you remember me? And he's like, Nope. And I said, well, when I was in the seventh grade, you walked up to me for no reason. You stomped on my foot and pushed me down into this day, my toenail isn't really connected to my foot. I just wanted you to know that that's what you did to me. And I thought he was going to take a swing at me or uh, you know, say I didn't do that or get the fuck out of here, and especially his friends, because I, I recognized all of his friends too because they were all from my old neighborhood. He was still friends with all of those people. And so I thought, you know, they were, I thought they were all going to tell me to go to hell, you know, I, I was, but I didn't care. I just wanted to confront him and just see what would happen. And I guess, I think I might've even been kind of hoping he'd take a swing at me so I could take a swing. Cause you know, when you're bullied as a kid by a bigger person, you just don't feel like you can strike back. Cause you're just like, well, if push comes to shove, he could kill me. <laughs> but I grew up. And so I felt like, you know, if things come to that, like I've got a chance here. And so he, um, but instead what he did was he just looked down at his feet and was ashamed visibly of, of his behavior and his friends, you know, everything stopped and his friends looked at him and said, you did that to this guy. What's wrong with you? Uh, and it, it was like out of, you know, it just felt completely not what I expected. And, and I felt like, okay, well, there's nothing else to do here. And so I just walked away. And, um, and I, I think what I learned from all that stuff is that, uh, bullies are suffering and they're not the caricature that we have of them, that they're, they wake up in the morning and they're like, ha ha, I'm going to bully people because I can. And it's fun. It's because they're tragic characters, right? Um, there were other moments of other situations like this. I, I might've talked about in the podcast before, um, around the same time, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, where some kid at school would, um, decide to try to mess with me. And, um, like there was this one time, this, this guy who, um, he was obnoxious and he didn't have a lot of friends or any friends. And he started messing with me outside of the classroom. And he, he was, we were going back and forth verbally or something. And he called me a Chinaman. <laughs> and I, I grew up in a community where we were so, I don't know, protected from such things that, we didn't have the words for, for racist slurs. And, and this kid was from out of town and he had moved recently to our neighborhood. And so he, um, he had all these fancy words like Chinaman. <laughs> and, and when I heard that, I, cause I've always had a tremendous amount of pride about 
my Japanese heritage. And, and when I heard that, I thought I, my brain was like, one, China, like I'm like Chinese and Japanese are completely different. Why? And two, that you're, that I'm guessing it's supposed to be some sort of racial insult, right? And so I just impulsively just socked him in the stomach as hard as I could. And he was so not ready for it. And it's something that I've, this is another lesson I learned, is that when you punch someone in the stomach and they're not ready for it, they, uh, it feels very strange because you're, your gut, your you know, your core is actually extremely squishy without muscles being involved. And I punched him what felt like I went all the way back to his spine. And I, I remember that strange sensation of just like my fist just disappearing into his gut. And he just dropped, you know, because it was so painful. He just he just went down. I mean I probably I probably hit him in the liver or the kidneys or something. And, and I, I remember immediately feeling bad about it, you know, just like, Oh my God, I, you know, I've, cause I thought I was just going to hurt him. I didn't think I was going to destroy him in that way. He goes down and he's wailing, you know, ah! and just then my teacher walks outside just randomly and looks at the two of us and says, you know, what's going on here? Cause it looked exactly what it was, was I had just, I had just injured him and he had gone down and the kid uh, looked up at the teacher as he's in pain and he's panting and he says, nothing. I just fell or something, something along those lines. I thought I was totally busted until he um, lied and said that um, he had, you know, that I hadn't punched him. And I remember really having a tremendous amount of respect for the kid at that. I, I really did not like the kid, obviously, uh, for, for a lot of reasons. Um, but I remember having a bit of respect for him in that moment. Like he didn't tell on me, he could have, he, he could have told on me and I would have been in humongous trouble. I mean, punching someone and causing an injury to them on, you know, at school that, you know, that I would have, I probably would have been like suspended or something. I don't know. I mean, maybe I could have talked my way out of it if I said that he called me a Chinaman. I don't know. But I, I, given what I know about the way schools operate, I'm guessing I would have been suspended and, and that would have been pretty, you know, horrible for me. But he didn't, he didn't say anything. He just, he just, you know, he just said nothing, you know, the code of the warrior, right? Looking back, I, his whole profile was someone who was really quite suffering, and he was, uh, I can't remember if it was him, but I, there was some kind of situation where he had a gun at school or something. It was some, you know, it was before Columbine, so it was more just like, why do you have a gun at school? I, I don't know if that was him. I, I know another kid brought a gun to school, and that was a big deal. But anyway, um, so that's to say that being bullied by Mike, the older kid, was a very you know important moment growing up. And I don't know what lesson I learned, but I must have learned something. Okay, so uh, this episode is already almost an hour, so I'm gonna try to race through the next ones. Um, the the next one again, maybe I'll just stick to when I was 
before I was 10, all the things that happened before I was 10. Um, I grew up in the woods and there were pine trees, alder trees, maple trees all around. And we didn't have video games. You know, the Atari 2600 hadn't come out until I was, you know, seven or eight or something. And even then, like, you can only play video games for so long on an Atari before getting bored, really. So, and there was no, like, kid television, right? There was no cable. You had ABC, NBC, CBS, and after school or particularly during the summer, the programming was not for kids. The only time you ever got anything for kids was Sesame Street, which was in the morning uh, before school. There was um, J.P. Patches, which I never really got into. There was uh, Captain Kangaroo and um, uh, the Banana Split. (laughs) And then there were were, uh, Saturday morning cartoons, which... I remember lasted for about a couple hours. You know, you had Bugs Bunny on Saturday mornings for a couple hours. It wasn't very long. I remember like at about 11 o'clock, that's when golf was started to be broadcast. And anyway, so there just wasn't anything to do and, and you had to entertain yourself. And one of the things that I did and I th- my friends did was we would climb trees. We would challenge ourselves with, trying to climb higher and higher and higher. And we would build tree houses and we would um, throw pine cones at each other from on high. And at the at a very young age, again, at the age of three or four, I was climbing very high in trees without any supervision, by the way, <laughs> and occasionally falling out of the trees. And eventually by the time I was, I don't know, six, seven years old, I was climbing pine trees that were, I don't know how to estimate, you know, the height of trees, but, you know, think of old growth pine tree forests and think of those really, really tall ones that it, it, even the first branches are often really high up, you know, because it's so old and the branches have fallen off in the lower, lower areas. And so just getting to the first branch can sometimes be a, a process. And I climbed and climbed and climbed. I, I would come in from outside. You know, I remember to, to have dinner with my parents and my hands and arms would just be covered in, in pitch from pine trees. And it would be really hard to wash off. And so I'd, I would be eating dinner with just all these splotches all over my hand from all the all the pitch, the sap that had infused itself into my skin. And I, there was this one tree in, in, the, in my backwoods that was taller and, and wider than any other tree. It, it was, I don't know how old, I don't know how old pine trees get, but it, it must have been very old because it was, you know, it was very tall. Anyway, so uh, I kept challenging myself to try to get to the top or, you know, there was a certain level of a tree where you couldn't really go beyond it because the branches were too small or the the top of the tree was too um, weak that you could, you could literally just snap off the top of the tree if you got too high. Right. And, uh, but with this tree, I couldn't really get to the top because 
it was just so high. <laughs> My hands sweat just thinking about it. But eventually, me and my friends got to the to the upper reaches of this extremely tall tree, and it was so tall that it was taller than all the other trees in the whole forest. And at the top, you know, up, you know, top, you know, branches, I could. See, it was like climbing a mountain. I could see downtown Issaquah. I could see Bellevue. I could see uh, the the you know the Cascade Mountains. I could I could see Mount Rainier. I could see Mount Baker. I could see every. It was like being in an airplane, right? And also, you could you could hear things that were different because the acoustics. When you're at ground level, there's so many things interfering with your ability to hear something that is, say, a couple blocks away, right, That to the point where you won't hear it. But when you're really high up, for some reason, the acoustics are such that you can hear things that are very far away. And I could hear highways that were miles away. I could hear people talking, you know, a couple blocks away. I could hear a dog barking far away. You know, there. It, it, I just felt like I was on top of the planet. It, it, and at the age of, you know, seven or something, eight, six, seven, eight, to to have that power, <laughs> to to and and also the camaraderie with my best friends. I had three best friends who were um, two guys were a year older than me and one was a year younger and. We lived all right next to each other. There was, you know, there were three houses right next, you know, and I was right in the middle. And my best friends lived right next door, and so we did everything together. And um, we would climb these trees, and um, the the feeling of of freedom that because even at the lower branches, we knew that our parents would not climb trees with us. And we could actually spy on people in the neighborhood by climbing trees and, and like, um, just, we just like to play spy. Like, okay, let's try to hide and spy on so-and-so. It wasn't a sexual thing. It was just like, you know, trying to be sneaky, I guess. I don't know. And it, it, it was, there was this power of climbing trees because we knew that very few people would do it. We knew our parents were afraid of it, I think. And I mean, even just the woods itself, we knew the parents wouldn't go into because they didn't want to get their shoes dirty or something. I don't know. But once we entered the woods, which was really the majority of our neighborhood was just was just old uh, Washington woods. We knew that once we crossed that threshold into the woods that we were, you know, as Lord of the Flies out there. There was there was no parents. There was no police. There was no adults. Uh, there often weren't even older kids. It was just young kids. And we could just do whatever we wanted. <laughs> and and um, so, yeah, so climbing the these super high trees uh, throughout my childhood was, um, I don't know, I don't know how to, what meaning it had from it. I, th- I think it just felt, I felt independent and I felt like, it was our own special place, and and it had a lot of really majestic qualities to it. Again, just being able to to you know look so far, and we would only climb that really tall tree every every once in a while. I mean, one of the things that that 
happens when trees are that tall is that they bend much more severely in the wind. So at the upper reaches of this of this tree, I remember even on a light breeze that the tree would be would sway several feet. You know, you could you could really tell that um, you were swaying, um, and that was very unnerving. <laughs> and I just think about the seventies, man. I mean, the, the fact that my parent, well, all of our parents, one didn't know where we were, and two, they knew we were climbing trees, and three, we probably told them we climbed the tallest tree, and there was no. I'm guessing my parents probably thought, well, be careful, but there was no monitoring. There was no like, well, is that really a good idea that our kids are climbing trees that if they fell out of, they would die for sure? Because I'm just thinking like, because I'm I'm looking out my window right now, I can see a pretty tall pine tree that um, I'm guessing uh, the tree we climbed was taller than that. But it's, you know, it's way above the the power lines. It's, I don't know, it's... How many feet is that? Probably, I'm looking at a tree around probably 60 feet. So I'm guessing that the tree that we, I'm going to look up a typical heights of pine trees. I've always wanted to know. Okay, so Google says 10 to 260 feet, with most species topping out at 150 feet. So, yeah, I could believe that. I could believe that the the tree was probably about 150 feet tall. Um, at least that seems possible. So, so 150 feet. So I was probably 140 feet in the air, 130 feet in the air. But uh, anyway, other ones are 260 feet. Anyway, so let's just say around 150 feet in the air. And if you fall from that height, you're dead. You know, that's, that's 15 stories in, you know, people, try to kill themselves by jumping off of buildings that are 15 stories. Now, you know, maybe I'd hit a few branches on the way down that would slow me down, but probably not. Cause I think the way you fall out of a tree is you sort of bounce out because the branches sort of bounce you away from the tree. And so I'd probably hit a branch, bounce away from the tree and just plummet to the floor of the forest and break my neck and die, or at least be extremely injured. And, you know, we didn't have any harnesses or, or training, and uh, you know, we took a lot of risks. And there were times when I, I remember there was sort of a way to gauge the strength of a branch because some branches could really hold you, and some branches couldn't, even if they looked like they could. And you had to, because some branches were dead; they were in the process of falling off the tree, and so you had to make sure that it, even if it was dying, it wasn't, you know. Uh, to the point where it would break underneath your your weight. And um, so there was a system. But I remember there were times when you would judge wrong and you would either slip or you would just break a branch and one of your feet would go. And, yeah, obviously there's a whole system of holding on to, you know, never just to- solely depending on one branch to support your entire weight without some way of catching yourself. But, but again, our parents just let us do that without any oversight. <laughs> it is a different time. A different time. All right. Well, I think that'll wrap that up. I, I'm guessing there are some of you that are... Um, well, no, I'll tell one more story because I think uh, this is... So if we're sticking to, you know, up until uh, about 
age 10-ish. Uh, this, this is a good one because this is a pretty pivotal moment for me. So I uh, was – my parents signed me up for this special class in the fifth grade called TLC, which often means you know tender, loving care. But in, the, in this situation, it meant the learning community. And it was a, an experimental sort of teaching style that – incorporated a lot of sort of, I don't know, hippie notions, I, I suppose, probably evidence-based, but anyway, and the class was, um, you know, marketed to the teachers or to the ki- to the parents during, you know, orientation. They, they said, you know, so your kids will be in a regular class, but we have this special class. And if you sign up for the special class, then, um, this is what it's going to be like. It's, Kids that are smart get to work at their own pace. So the whole class is based on sort of individualized learning styles and this kind of thing, and not just sitting at a desk and reading books and blah, blah, blah. It was about experiential learning. We had a computer in the class, which was like incredible to have like an actual computer in 1980, an IBM. Uh, It was because one of our classmates' dads worked at IBM actually, but... Anyway, and this was when MS-DOS had just come out and I was learning basic and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, so uh, it was marketed to the parents as like, I'm guessing it was marketed as like, if your kid is smart, it'll help them to uh, branch out a little bit more and and, uh, even accelerate even faster. Um, And I don't know if it was marketed this way, but parents took it this way as, and if your kid is also having trouble in school and struggling, then this class will help them because it'll help them go at their own pace. So what ended up happening was a majority of the kids who were signed up for this class were sort of the rejects of the social order, the unpopular kids, the weirdos, the ADHD kids. And my parents signed me up for it. And maybe I was one of those kids. I don't know. But – but. Uh, so, uh, long story short, <laughs> or long story medium long, is once I was in the class, uh, and I was immediately upset that my parents signed me up for this because when you're in the fifth grade, you don't want to stick out. You know, you just want to be like a regular person, and so it was upsetting to me. And I get in this class, and uh, I realized that almost none of my friends are in this class. I only have one friend that's in this class. And um, and we were good friends. Um, but all my other friends were in the regular classes. And everyone in the class I was in were either the super, super nerds or the super, super difficult kids, you know, kids who were um, struggling, kids who were often ostracized for very, who had behavioral problems, you know, kids who were, um, sometimes would bully other kids or were, um, you know, sent to the office a lot. And so I considered myself to be sort of a a normal kid, (laughs) you know, mainstream kid. And for me to be in this, it felt like I was in like a special ed class is, is I guess the way that it seemed like. And the rest of the school saw it this way as well. And so the rest of the school, the kids, bullied us as, a, as an entire class because they thought of us as like the special ed 
nerd kids. And so they would, um, they would make fun of us and they would, you know, they would ostracize us and no one would play with us. But a lot of the kids that were bullying us were my friends, were kids I, you know, played soccer with or invited to my birthday parties and they invited me. And when I would go to them, I'd be like, what are you doing? Like, and they're like, oh, we're making funny of the rest of the kids, not you. They'd say, <laughs> they're like, yeah, this is, we're targeting, you know, the nerds and the rejects. We're, we're not in the special ed kids. You know, you're, why are you in this class? They would ask me, you know, and I'd be like, I don't know. But when you're in a class, you end up bonding with the classmates. And, and I realized that the other kids in this class um, were, were great kids. They were, you know, even though they were considered the rejects and the, the nerds and the social outcasts, they were great, fun, uh, interesting people. They just, I don't think I realized it at the time, but they, they just lacked a certain social ability to seem cool and to, to come off as interesting, you know, (laughs) there's, there's a way that people, there's a way of acting that makes you seem like you're a cool person. Right. And, these kids did not have it. <laughs> and I don't think I had it either, but uh, at the very least, I, uh, I was a, you know, I was a, anyway. So then, so that that's the background. So then um, in PE class, physical ed, we decided to play, you know, that we were going to play volleyball. And as a way to, I guess, make it interesting, the uh, school decided to pit the different classes against each other. So, you know, uh, Mrs. Smith's class would play volleyball against Mr. Brown's class. And the whole class would play. So all 25 kids would be on one side of the net. The entire class, you know, normally volleyball has five or six players. Well, because we're so small and so terrible at volleyball that we needed all 25 people to participate to make the game interesting. (laughs) And so the entire class would compete against another class. And it was a big deal because it was probably the only time in the whole, whole school year in which we did such a thing where we would pit an entire class against another class and people would have a lot of pride right in their class. Well, for whatever reason, uh, us, the reject class, was really good at volleyball compared to the other classes, and there was this, and we, there was a tournament, and we were winning, and we were eliminating other classes left and right, and then it, then the championship. There was so there's going to be a, a you know a final championship match between our class and the other. Uh, class that qualified for the championship. And it was a big deal to us because we had something to prove because we had been bullied by the entire school. Imagine that your your class is hated and ridiculed by everyone else in the school. You know, it was it made us really bond together naturally, right? Well, it was such a big deal to us that one person in the class made a big poster because, you know, 
nerds like to make posters, I guess. <laughs> and so someone in the class made this big poster and it says, you know, something like go, our, our, we had actually, so not only did we have a weird class, but, uh, but we had two teachers. We had Mrs. King and Mrs. Marshall. So that was another thing that set us apart from other classes. Like not only are they weird and all this other ways, but they have two teachers, you know, it's, it's so funny the way fifth graders will target you with bullying for like the most dumbest reasons. And that was one of the reasons, you know, they, they have a computer in their room uh, they ha- and they have two teachers. And so therefore we must ridicule them and torture them. So anyway, the, the, the poster said something to the effect of, um, you know, go Mrs. Marshall and Mrs. King's class for volleyball or something. It was just some kind of thing like that. And so, so someone made that and they put it up in the room that we played volleyball in, which was the gymnasium, right? Which is the same room that we ate lunch in, right? So the lunchroom uh, also was the gymnasium, which was also the theater, right? There was a stage at one end and the kitchen and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So, uh, we line up to go to lunch. You always would line up and, and then we would walk down to the lunchroom and we're, we're line, you know, and they would make us line up before entering the lunchroom. It was kind of like military. <laughs> like you, you would, you would walk lockstep in two lines as you entered the lunchroom and then you would file in and sit down at, at, at these, you know, this long kind of picnic style, uh, lunchroom tables and as we're walking in i hear everyone is booing in the in the cafeteria i look up and i see the sign i'm like oh someone made a sign that's pretty cool cheering us on but everyone's booing and i can't figure out why i I what i figured was something had happened prior to us walking in that everyone hated and they were all yelling and booing about it and we just happened to walk in as that was happening. Well, I, I look, I'm looking around the room going, what is everyone booing at? And it dawns on me as everyone is looking at us that they're all booing at us. The entire student body is booing us and yelling at us. And then the food starts to fly. People, I mean, it was hamburger day. I'll never forget this hamburger um vertically flies through the air and separates and the hamburger patty is you know like a wheel in the in the air is flying at us people are throwing food at us and i'm thinking when are the teachers going to put an end to this and the teachers weren't doing anything and i thought does this bullying extend even into the teachers lounge and it was a horrible feeling to to have an entire school just doing something so mean so openly and without any consequence that that's what i remember just feeling really upset about that that the teachers didn't put an end to it one and didn't punish the kids like didn't say like look you can't you can't do that it's not fair you know like no uh you're you all have you all have detention or you all have to, you all don't have recess anymore or something, you know, just some, but there was nothing like that. And then one of the kids in the class, as this booing is happening and food is flying at us, one of the kids in my class 
is so kind of worked up about this scenario that he runs over to the poster and tears it down. And it's a really long poster. It was probably like, I don't know, 15 feet long of paper, glitter on it, blah, blah, blah. He just runs up to it, grabs it, and tears it down and stuffs it in a garbage can. And now the, cl- now the whole uh, lunchroom is laughing because he, he, he was very worked up about it, right? He's, you know, tears it down violently and, you know, stuffs it into a garbage can. And now everyone's laughing and booing and they're, they, you know, it was just this confluence of so many different problems. And so I go to my friends afterwards in the other classes and I'm like, dudes, like, what are you, why would you be throwing food at us and booing us? And he, and again, they're like, oh, we weren't, you know, we weren't doing it to you. We were doing it to all the other misfits in your class. Well, so what ended it's, but then in my head, I'm like, well, we'll show them because we'll beat them in volleyball and they can all go to hell. <laughs> but the school, in their wisdom, canceled the championship match because of the booing. So instead of punishing the other kids, they essentially punished us because we weren't given the chance to actually win the tournament and they just took it away. It's, you know, it was probably a good choice in the end, but, but it didn't feel like it at the time. It just felt like, okay, not, so not only do we get booed, humiliated, food thrown at us, but now we have volleyball. The one thing we had is taken away from us. So that was a very impressionable moment because I, it was in a very kind of Lord of the Flies um, social phenomenon that happens, you know, in a greater extent in our broader society and with much worse consequences. And so, so another, so there's another element to this sort of progression to my life. When I became a ninth grader in high school, I, for a number of it's arbitrary reasons. Suddenly I was super popular. So growing up, I, I was always, you know, liked, I guess, but I wasn't like one of the upper echelon dudes. There, there were, there was a handful of guys who were the upper, you could just, you just knew, you, you knew the, the five girls who were super cool. And you knew the five guys who were super cool. They were good at sports. They were funny. They never said anything stupid. They always had the right clothes they, their haircut was right. They were cute and, you know, every, everything they did was, was great. They lived in the right neighborhoods. You know, there was, there was just that upper echelon and, and I was never in that upper echelon and, 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 you know, I guess I just noticed that, but I, but I, I considered myself sort of, of average popularity, if, you know, if that made any sense. And then that thing happened in the fifth grade and, and, uh, you know, the the cool kids hung out with me. The, the cool guys hung out with me anyway. And, um, but it was clear I wasn't as cool, if that makes any sense. Anyway, so, so, you know, I accepted my lot in life. I was of average popularity and that, that was fine. You know, it's just, I was okay with that. Then I go to eighth grade and at this point I've sprouted, at height, I, I'm 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 basically as tall as I am now. At, at, in the ninth grade, I'm, you know, almost. I mean, I'm six one now. It's probably 
almost six feet at the time. So I, you know, and, and a lot of my classmates that the other guys had not had their growth spurt quite to that extent yet. And so, so I just looked more like a man, I guess. And I was really good at sports and I, um, and when you're in high school, that's when you start playing sports for your high school. Right. And so when, when you're good at sports, when you're in the third grade, no one really knows or cares, but when you're good at sports in high school, people know, especially if you're playing, you know, football, American football, because it was a big deal at our high school. Everyone went to the games, blah, blah, blah. And so sudden, and there were a couple other factors too, I think that led to me being suddenly super popular. I was suddenly in that upper echelon, you know, that, that upper 4% of popularity. And it was such a weird experience for me because I'd, because I'd grown up in the same school. I'd grown up with the same kids since preschool. Um, you know, I went from preschool to elementary school to junior high to high school with the same group of kids. We, you know, we, we all, there, there was, it was, there weren't enough, there wasn't enough population in my neighborhood for there to be multiple elementary schools and multiple junior highs. There was one elementary school, one junior high, and then one high school. And so when now there's several, cause the population has exploded in that area. But, but anyway, so it was a, so it wasn't like I moved to another school and suddenly got popular. It was just like suddenly among these people who considered me to be of mid-level popularity. Now they, they treat me differently. And that was a very strange experience. They were, they wanted to do stuff with me and they hung out with me in between classes and they wanted to sit with me at lunch. And suddenly my jokes were funnier and suddenly, um, you know, people wanted to date me all of a sudden. <laughs> and, and suddenly uh, people were asking me to hang out on the weekends and uh, suddenly my clothes were cool and everything I said was interesting. I, I just remember being very shocked by the whole thing. And since I had lived for so long with these people as a non-popular person, I evaluated this change critically. I looked at it as not an inherent thing about me, but as some interesting phenomenon that's happening in my society right now. For some reason the society and the collective has decided I'm popular all of a sudden. And because before, when I, when I was younger, I would look at the upper echelon popular kids and I just assumed there was something inherent about them that made them popular, right? There was some, they were, there's something special about them. They, they just had it. They had that special thing and the rest of us did not have it. Well, once I became super popular, not out of any effort of me, it was just some circumstances that happened. Boom, I'm super popular. I mean, I was elected. Um, I was elected to office, like you know, government office, because and that's basically a popularity contest. I was homecoming royalty, and which is purely a popularity contest, right? I mean, you you don't even run for it. Like they just send out ballots to every class, every, you know, all 400 people in my, in my class, uh, you know, our freshman class. 
and people just write down three names of people that they think should be homecoming royalty. And I, I was one of those people, you know, it's like that if, if that doesn't tell you you're in the upper echelon, like, I don't know what does. And so it was like, I I was looking at it and I I thought, okay, before there's nothing different about me. Like I'm the same nerdy, goofy person. And now all of a sudden I have it, but what is it? It's nothing. It's just how you fit into society and how people see you. And, and also like once you're in the super cool category, everything you do is now defined as cool. So if, you know, for example, liking star Wars made me a nerd when I was a nerd now that I'm super cool, the fact I like Star Wars means that liking Star Wars is 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 now the cool thing, and now everyone wants to like Star Wars. That's not you know what happened, but just as an example. So, I I remember very quickly realize and being very skeptical, and and suddenly all these cool kids wanted to be my friends, and they they wanted to be my friend and hang out with me all the time, and I remember just sort of looking at them, thinking, well, you know. Thanks for wanting to be my friend, but you're not really my friend because where were you a couple of years ago? You know, where, where was all this attention back then when, when I was the same person and blah, blah, blah. Um, having said that, I, you know, I, I, I definitely was, um, swept up in the magic, so to speak. And I had a best friend in eighth grade that I basically, um, ignored once I became super popular and I um, apologized to him subsequently, and um, and it was a we were inseparable. And then suddenly, I was catapulted into popularity, and um, just I, I don't remember, you know, consciously turning away from him, but um, I don't know. But I must have rejected him somehow, subtly or overtly. I don't know, which was bad. So it wasn't like I was completely, um, you know conscious of every aspect morally and otherwise as I was going through that. But but what I learned from it was that society is a funny thing and popularity is a funny thing and it has nothing to do with some inherent quality you have. It just has to do with what the society privileges at the time. And that popularity is something that is not something to strive for. When I was younger, it was something I I tried to get. You know, I was like, I was like, well, you know, every once in a while there'd be an opportunity to try to get more popularity. You know, and and it would always fail, right? You know, I don't know, dressing right or saying the right thing or inviting the right people to your party or something. I don't know. And then suddenly, I I had had it arbitrarily, and I realized, oh, this is. This is just something that society chooses. And another another lesson that I learned was that being popular wasn't wasn't great. It didn't it didn't make me feel any better about myself. It didn't improve my life at all. You know, um, it, it it was a bit of an ego stroke to have people suddenly laughing at all my jokes, but but it didn't improve my life really. You know, and it helped me to learn that striving for that sort of thing wasn't worth it, that um, it it didn't have any meaning to it. And so um, pretty quickly after that, so I basically lived the life of a popular person 
my entire ninth grade year. But then after that, I pretty quickly returned to nerds to hang out with and, um, you know, rekindled all my old friendships with the rejects and the weirdos. And, um, like, um, I always think of 16 candle candles, you know, that, that lineup of, of all the nerds, you know, John Cusack and Anthony Michael Hall and, um, you know, just, just all the, the dweebs and the dorks. Um, that was my crew that that's who I felt legitimately, um, comfortable with. And, uh, I just liked them because, because there's a certain freedom in being a dork because you don't, you've, you've accepted the fact that you're a dork and you don't have anything to lose socially because (laughs) if you make a fool out of yourself, uh, you know, that's what society expects you to do. (laughs) Whereas if you're super cool, you got to uphold that facade, right? You have to, you have to stick to your guns and make sure you're presentable to the world. (laughs) And so, uh, so I, you know, went back to my nerds. Now, what my friends will say to this day, uh, I'm actually seeing a bunch of high school friends tonight. They'll say I was popular. They'll be, in fact, they have, they have a phrase they're like Kirk, you were pop, they call it. And, they joke about it. So it wasn't like I was, you know, um, super, super nerdy, but I definitely preferred to hang out with, um, the, at the very least non-popular people, the popular people were fine and they, you know, they had good qualities, but, but it was, um, not, not me just didn't feel like me anyway. So what I learned about all that was society's weird Popularity is a sham. Uh, Once you're in the popular cool crowd, you will realize that it is not all that. Um, That nerds are free to do what they want. (laughs) And there's a lot of enjoyment in that. That um, true friendship is a very wonderful thing. I mean, so, so I went back to my, the the one friend that I was inseparable from, we, we never, for whatever reason, rekindled our friendship, but, but my other nerd friends that I'd gone all the way from preschool, you know, my, these are friends I played Dungeons and Dragons with. We watched Star Trek. We, um, you know, would play sort of immature games like cops and robbers and stuff even in high school, we liked video games. We would go to the bowling alley and play video games. Uh, just all that kind of nerd stuff. And back then, and I don't know if it's so much now, but I, I maybe it still is. It, it was definitely nerdy and definitely geeky and something that you definitely didn't want to advertise. You know, uh, my friends would not admit that they played Dungeons and Dragons. They just wouldn't, you know. And for fear of extreme social ostracization. And uh, now I feel like being a nerd, you can still kind of be cool in some ways. I'm guessing it's not entirely that way. But anyway, I I eventually rekindled all my old uh, friends, and um, including the, the other guy that I went to fifth grade with to that class, and including Mark Hankin, who I stole the Matchbox car from when I was in the when I was four years old 
and um i i formed this like this like fraternity kind of group in in high school um where we had initiations and <laughs> and stuff it was our own little nerd club and um and that's a whole other story i learned a lot of things through all that uh, that is, that uh, social group as well i mean that group that it, it was it was at its peak it involved nine different guys that i basically chose to be in this group and and we modeled ourselves after lord of the flies to such an extent that when we would actually have meetings we would have like uh, you know group meetings in my basement where we would have like official meetings you know imagine 16 year olds nine 16 year olds having like an official meeting of some kind and we had a conch and so we so in if you remember lord of the flies they uh eventually tried to form some form of civilization and instead of just utter chaos the group decided that they would each take turns talking and the way that they designated wh whose turn it was is there was a conch a conch shell right it's a large shell the other kind of shell that you listen and you can hear the ocean in, right and it's it it's spelled conch but you pronounce it conch but we didn't know that and when we w read lord of the flies when we were in high school or whenever we read it we all thought it was a conch and so <laughs> uh, when we had this meeting in my basement i had this uh practice sword uh, that my brother, my brother, my older brother took kendo, which is the Japanese martial art of the katana sword. And they have a, a practice sword that's made out of bamboo. And it's this genius invention that it's made out of bamboo, but it's made out of slats of bamboo. And so when you hit someone with it, it doesn't really hurt. So you can take this, it's pretty rigid though, but you can hit someone with this, this practice bamboo sword and it, it, you know, it has a good amount of heft and a good weight to it, but it gives as it hits you. And so it doesn't really hurt. We loved this thing because, you know, we could beat each other with it. But anyway, we called that the conch and we would pass that around, each giving someone a chance to talk. And um, so I don't know why I'm going down that road, but uh, just another weird thing that um, me and my friends did and something that I was a pivotal moment. But anyway... All right. Well, that that was just me talking about me for an hour and a half, which is ridiculous. Um, uh, I feel funny self-disclosing this much, but I suppose it's just for patrons, which, you know, there's only about, well, there's about nine, 800 of you now. So I guess it's not that few of people. <laughs> So I guess this is only being listened to by 800, 800 people. Um, my God, I can't believe I just said all that. I guess it wasn't. It's not that embarrassing, right? It's just a bunch of childhood things, and I think I, I think I'm at the stage now, and I've been sort of progressing into that where I can talk more about myself. And these are stories that I wouldn't mind. So my my whole thing about self disclosure is I one just you know don't want to reveal everything about me. I, you know, I have private parts of me. <laughs> and also I always just assume that my clients are listening to everything, even though um, they aren't likely to be listening to everything. But, 
ethically speaking, I have to basically assume that any any current client or future client has has accessed and consumed everything that I've ever put out there on the internet, including the podcast. And so I'm always thinking, like, is it um, advisable to be talking about self-disclosing this thing um, on the podcast, given that I'm still a clinician? And I think that these stories are okay for my clients to hear. In fact, I would, at times, maybe even reference some of these stories. I would obviously tell them much quicker because when you're self-disclosing in session, you need to do it fast so that's not you know, a long diatribe that focuses on you. But, but, you know, occasionally with my clients, I'll, I'll, I'll throw in some little anecdote that will maybe provide some insight into the situation or make it so that I can relate to their experience somehow or something. I don't know. And I, I think that these stories anyway are important, at least for me to, understand for myself and i think that maybe by modeling that for your for you out there i know a lot of you are clinicians and and a lot of you are just into self-help so that this so i I guess i'll say that this has been an interesting exercise i've told these stories before but not in this way and it it is interesting and meaningful to me to to have done this exercise but it also i think through these experiences, it reminds me of the lessons that I want to hold on to. And it reminds me of the principles of life that I want to remind myself of. For example, that popularity is a sham or that reaching out for help and getting inspiration and and support from other people can not only change my attitude, but change my body, give me the strength to get up that hill. You know, these are important principles that I learned and want to learn and want to live. And I, and I think that telling these stories has, has helped that, you know, has reminded me and inspired me to, to live by those lessons once more. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really do.